0: I hear people say democracy is being threatened. Democracy is not being threatened. Democracy lives in the, in the hearts of all the people.
1: Hi, everyone. Steve Shepard here with the Natural Curiosity Project. As many of you know, I published a book in March of 2021 called The Nation We Knew. It's a novel based on literally thousands of hours of research I conducted built around a simple question. What would happen if a new president came into power, a president with a commitment to the people, not the party, a president consumed with the idea of building progress on a platform of common sense, how might this president reinvent things like health care, infrastructure, education, corrections, transportation, foreign policy, and the government itself if she, and that's right, she, could get Washington to leave the elephants and donkeys outside to tear up the grass and focus on where the nation needs to be, not where it is. What would that look like? Well, the book became a global bestseller in political fiction, and continues to sell really well more than a year later. Its common-sense ideas piss off the extremes of both major parties, if the reviews are any indication, and that makes me happy. About a month after the book came out, I got a call from a guy named Randall Hines. That was him you heard at the beginning of the episode. Randy's running for election to the U.S. House to represent Nevada's 3rd Congressional District. He's on the ballot in the Democratic primary that will be held on June 14th of this year. Randy told me that he had read my book and that it aligned very much with his goals as a political candidate. To focus on people, not party, and do the right things for the nation by doing the right things for its people. A few days ago, I interviewed Randy. We talked about a lot of things, things that are important to him, and things that should be important to all of us. He's clearly spent a lot of time thinking about how we close the gap between where we are as a nation and where we could be. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, so let's start with this. Who's Randy Hines?
0: I am a fifth-generation Irish immigrant. My great-great-grandfather came here in the 1898. I'm a veteran. My grandfather and my great grandfather, both veterans, you know, growing up in in Indiana in a very Republican state. You know, I had parents that, that loved me very much and gave me uh, gave me a lot of, of leeway, kind of leaned towards, you know, my mother's uh, political party Republican. And I held on to that for a long time, you know, until last year when I sat down and I said, I want to try to justify to myself. And to my wife, you know, why it is that I voted for Trump three times. It was hard. I sat down and I started reaching back historically, you know, what has the Republican Party done? And how has the Democratic Party fought them on all the things that they've done, even, you know, so far back as to to when they were formed to basically abolish slavery? I had a long list going, but at some point I just realized that I just need to, you know, release the anger. That I have from what occurred at the, the election and see what's really going on. And what's really going on is that Trump made us realize that there is truly a silent majority. There's a, there's a continuous long running Gallup poll that says that over 40% of us lean to the center. Nobody's paying any attention to that. So that's what I wanted to, to, to bring to light is that there's more of us shaking our heads. Not really understanding, you know, what to do. And there's nobody in there trying to lead, but we have to, we have to move forward and we have to figure out what we can do. That's what I'm trying to do.
1: So Randy, what does that look like? I mean, you started out as a strong advocate for moderation with what you called the rampart party. You wrote and spoke extensively about the challenges we face, but somewhere along the way, something
0: changed. You got to figure out how to return moderation, you know, red and blue party members who consider people first. That's where I headed and I, and it got November. I couldn't write another word. I'd already said everything that I could and I was like, okay, what do I do now? So there was, uh, there was a group, Veterans for Political Innovation. And I thought, well, you know, I'll extend, I'll reach out to them and say, I want to help. You know, I'm a veteran and you know, what you're saying resonates with me. And then there was a, a fellowship that came up. From Unite America, they're a a big, you know, down the middle group that identified exactly what I saw as the problem, which is what they call the primary problem. And so they actually had a fellowship for the primary problem. And I've been, and I've been continuously saying, okay, well, you know, this is the way to do it. Primaries are such low turnout that they can be overwhelmed. And if you just get enough people in there in each district to overwhelm them, you can get moderates to come and and participate with the anticipation that there's gonna be more people come and then the vote will be more representative of the district. There's 235 million Americans who are eligible to vote. Some don't vote, but out of that 235 million, only 23 million showed up at at the primary. I visualize it just from my street. There's 93 voters on my street. When you break down the parties, Three people from the Republican Party and three people from the Democrat Party out of 93 people, you know, using those same numbers, decided who was going to be in the November election. (laughs) It's just not right. You talk
1: a lot about the importance of the primary in our political system, but I think a lot of people almost look at it as sort of practice for the actual election. I mean, clearly that's not the case. At the state level, the primary determines the number of delegates that each party's national convention will receive from the state. And those delegates then select their party's presidential nominee at the National Nominating Convention and other things that are important to that. So what is it about the primary process that's broken and why does it matter?
0: The system has eroded to the point where just a few partisan members from each side nominate the representatives that go to Congress. It's put us at a disadvantage because moderates can't anticipate that enough people are going to show up to to vote them in. And uh, voters can anticipate that a moderate candidate is going to show up, so basically we're sending the most partisan candidate to the general election, and uh, when the rest of us show up, we're only voting for the most partisan nominee from the primaries. Candidates who would uh, would normally go down the middle and say that they would represent people first can't anticipate that enough people are going to show up from the district to to vote them in, and uh, a lot of people are staying at home. Because they believe that the candidate that represents their position in the primary aren't showing up. Voters really can't anticipate that their vote's going to matter.
1: But it's more than that, right? I mean, isn't there an issue of incumbency or inertia at play here?
0: We're really at a point now where we're centuries into having accepted a Republican party and Democratic party. And it's so ingrained that it's, it's not going anywhere. I always uh, say that the parties are, are like our favorite sports team. We, we love them. We root for them. A lot of them never make the playoffs. They don't have a winning record. And that's the same way that we treat the parties. You know, they, they don't, they don't have a winning season. They don't make the playoffs, but we still love them. And I don't think they're going anywhere, but embodied within that, we've got a system where the, we're sending the most partisan members to Congress. If we can get the primaries to work so that Moderates can anticipate that enough moderates are going to show up and vote, then we'll get more moderation in there. It's people that consider the people first and hopefully only.
1: Okay, so Mr. Hines goes to Washington. In our conversations, you've told me that one of the things you'd work hard to change is to have all the primaries happen on the same week to create a strong focus and a sense of urgency around the importance of the primary process. I love that. But let me ask you a more specific question. One of the things you commented on about my book, and thanks for that, by the way, is the degree to which I got specific about the things that need fixing and how the new president went about doing that. What are the specific things that you'd go after? in Washington.
0: The first thing that I recognize is that there there have been these these issues that have been maybe caused by Congress, ignored by Congress, put on the back burner, totally politicized. There's a lot of hanging fruit out there where both sides won a little bit from each category and there's nobody saying, "Okay, well, let's get together. You want X, you want Y. Let's bring it together." A couple of the topics that I picked that affect people the most Are that we don't have a long-term energy policy. You know, the fact that we're on the only known inhabitable planet kind of lends to the, to the fact that, you know, obviously we we need, we need to be the best stewards of the planet Earth as possible, but we can't have such a short-term plan that uh, climate activists have. What that's resulted in is, you know, by trying to shut down the oil industry and focus on renewables, is that it's put us in a position where it's made coal more affordable. And coal is the most grossly polluting energy that we can possibly have. We need to figure out how to stabilize and uh, return certainty to the coal and gas industry so we can use natural gas to replace coal and then transition over to what the Trump administration and the Biden administration say is our future, which is nuclear power. We've been doing it for 70 years, and because of the weaponization of it, it's always had kind of a negative connotation. But right, we're getting 20% of our electrical energy totally carbon-free from nuclear power. In the background, the U.S. government is just gangbusters about nuclear. Use natural gas to transition over, completely stop burning and exporting coal, transition over to nuclear, and use solar where it's most effective. Which is in a distributed fashion. I love it. What else? The other category is, is border protection. We see that it's a problem. We have people coming over the border anonymously. We have an estimated 20 million people living here anonymously. What are we going to do about that? You know, the left, they've allowed through irresponsible governing the ability for those to occur. Anonymous entry, anonymous residency. And there's no clear solution for clearing that up other than saying, okay, we've, we've had irresponsible governing. We've got 20 million people living here anonymously. Let's figure a way to integrate them into our community. And the right wants border protection. Well, let's do it. Let's realign the border, figure a way out for people that want to come here instead of coming in through other than port, ports of entry. Create other central locations for them to go in and and plead their case, and then figure a way out to to get the people that are living here anonymously integrated into society. This is what you have to do, and you know over a certain period of time or a shorter period of time to get citizenship. There's no way that we're going to go and put 20 million people on buses and send them back to where they where they came from. It's never going to happen.
1: Okay, you're making way too much sense, my friend. What about healthcare?
0: Your book is what's is what's always in the back of my mind. After getting a couple of those things behind us and knowing and seeing that we can work together, we just need to fix the budget. We're spending almost $2 trillion across state, local, federal on health care. It's not complete healthcare. When you look at it, you sit down and you go, okay, well, we're covering folks that are qualified for Medicare, seniors and dis- disabled. We're trickling down to Medicaid to help states out with healthcare. We're funneling in homeless and, and, and mental health issues in order to uh, curb the problems that are happening in, in, uh, in, in metropolitan areas. When you really look at it, there's, there's much more that the federal government's actually paying for. Everybody's in the military, a lot of veterans, about about nine out of 19 million veterans are, have, have healthcare coverage. Almost half of veterans are are I'm sixty years old or are, are my age or older. So it's an aging population. Then when you look at it more on the state or local level, everybody gets in prison, two million people in prison, they all have healthcare. There's all this money that's going into healthcare at different levels. And when you know when you really add it up, it's twelve, fourteen thousand dollars per person. You know, if I had twelve or fourteen thousand dollars, I could just go get total healthcare coverage. And I wouldn't have any problems. I wouldn't have a deductible. You know, that premium would cover everything. And But we're still spending all that money. What about employment and job creation? We can start making more of an investment into students and what I call transitional training. There's dozens or hundreds of situations, you know, all throughout our lives that we need a little bit of help getting to that next room. The obvious ones are, you know, student to adult. It's basically you're, the stu- student says, okay, well, I, I graduated from high school or maybe I didn't graduate from high school. I turn 18. I'm on my own. What am I going to do now? Well, if, if we invested a little bit each year into each student at a point where they had, and I, and I've, I've actually called it, I've actually called it like a, a student trust where at some point after they graduate, then this trust funds and they get, they have money. And rules of the trust of how to use it. How are they going to use it? Maybe they can go to trade school, college. Maybe they can use it for a a supplemental income. If they went to a, went to a job that an entry level job and they weren't making uh, enough to, to, to live, maybe they could, maybe they could use a little bit like what Andre Yang says is, you know, UBI. They got a little bit. They can supplement their income for it. If you put $600 a month from first to 12th grade, that That would fund it about seventy five or eighty thousand dollars, so you'd have that that amount of money maybe you didn't maybe you used it for college and and you got an associate's degree and you know maybe there's other rules if you still there's still money in there when you're a certain age twenty two or twenty four twenty six and maybe at some point left over when you're twenty six and you can use it as for a down payment on the house something like that. if we're able to make that four trillion dollars that we're sending now and it's going to increase it always increases. So if you look at it, except for 2010, since 1930, the amount of tax, in, tax income that's coming in doubles every 10 years.
1: Randy, these are all reasonable, achievable, common sense ideas that come from a place of putting people, not party first. I, th- I think we need to clone you. Let me ask you this. We're experiencing a period of national polarization right now that's pretty depressing. There's a whole lot of us versus them going
0: on. What are your thoughts on that? I'm actually in the camp where Congress is polarized, but the country's not. I hear people say democracy is being threatened. Democracy is not being threatened. Democracy lives in the the hearts of all the people. Most of us are just sitting at home, living our best lives, shaking our heads. Congress is polarized because of the primary problem. There's at least two-thirds and maybe 80% of us are just not buying it. And, I, and I'm not buying it. I see that there's a huge, you know, silent majority. It's kind of like, you know, we've got these two yapping chihuahuas being amplified by the media, just yapping over our heads. So I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it with the, that the country's polarized. I'm saying that because we only have two real choices because of two centuries of having these parties ingrained, I, I'm not buying it.
1: Your realistic optimism is refreshing. Thank you. So one last question, and it has to do with something I've thought a lot about over the years and which I talk about quite a bit in The Nation We Knew. And that's the perception that we're going from a sense of community, which is very inclusive, to more of a sense of tribalism, which is designed to exclude. And a lot of that is driven by the artificial power of labels. You're a liberal. I'm a conservative. You're a Democrat. I'm a Republican. You're from one religion or ethnicity or gender. I'm from another what do you say to people who rely on labels to define a person?
0: They think it is a pledge of fealty that in order to in order to be a Republican or be a Democrat, that you have to go through some rite of passage, some feats of strength, but it's not that way. It it it's a label. It's a label on your registration card. It's it's not anything more than that. Because of the throng of, of, of media saying that it's something other and because Congress is polarized, that you must be polarized. It's just a label. You know, the, the messages that go with that, go with that label, they just seem to me to be, you know, an utter failure. We see that the parties are, you know, we like them because they are something that we can root for, like a local sports team. But, uh, when you look at it, the left's message is that, you know, we, we want to, we want to help people. We're good for people and that the amount of money that we need to spend to help people is, is secondary, but we've got last count, 43 million people living in poverty. There's 2 million people in prison, 20 million people living here anonymously. That doesn't sound like a, like that the message is actually resonated. One thing that you always think about with the, with the Republican party label is that. They want smaller government. They want to spend less money. I don't know if you've noticed, but the United States government is the largest in history with the largest budget. So that that really hasn't worked out very well.
1: No, it hasn't on either side of the aisle. Randy, I want to close this interview with a quote from The Nation We Knew. It's interesting that we speak routinely about the political polarization that has taken place in the nation and the paralyzing effect that this separation brings about. I say interesting because the theme of polarization plays a key role in this novel, but not in the political sense. I wrote this book because of the fatigue that plagues the country today. Not COVID-related fatigue, although that's serious stuff, but fatigue associated with the loud, meaningless drone of noise emanating from many of our elected officials, going all the way to the top, that serves to divide rather than unite us, at a time when we need the power of national unity more than we have at any time in the recent past. In the United States, two phrases are well known to everyone. We the people, and e pluribus unum, from the many, One. When did the one become many, so polarized that coming together is like trying to get the south poles of two strong magnets to touch? Randy, thank you for taking the time to chat with me and share your thoughts. I wish you well, and I hope people will take the time to listen to what you have to say and take it to heart. People like you make a difference. Thanks for helping us see what could be. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of The Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode you. Mm-hmm.